0: Spectrum's next.
1: Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi weekly 30 minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Good afternoon. My name is Brad Swift, and I'm the host of today's show. Our interview is with Dr. Flaminia Catruccia, Associate Professor of Immunology and Infectious Diseases in the department of the same name, at the Harvard School of Public Health. She is also an associate professor at the University of Perugia in Italy. Malaria is a leading cause of death in tropical and subtropical regions. The plasmodium parasite that causes malaria is transmitted by the biting of female Anopheles mosquitoes. Dr. Catruccia's group studies the molecular basis of mating and reproduction in In both the female and male of four species of mosquito. They are looking for the most effective and robust strategies to frustrate mosquito reproduction. Overall, they aim to provide insight into the reproductive biology of this malaria vector, which until recently remained largely unstudied, so that new targets for vector control can be developed. Dr. Kataruchia was in the Bay Area recently for a conference, and I was able to arrange an interview. Flaminia Cataruccia, welcome to Spectrum. Thank you. Would you give us an overview of your current project?
2: Yes, sure. So my research group is based at Harvard, the School of Public Health. Uh, is working on uh, the biology of the mosquitoes that transmit malaria in Africa. And malaria is still a massive problem for tropical and subtropical countries, but in particular for Africa, as it kills almost a million people every year and infects about 200 million people every year so it's a massive social and economical problem and malaria is transmitted by mosquitoes so we believe that if we can stop mosquitoes from transmitting malaria then we can solve a big problem for the countries that are affected so in particular my group focuses on uh, studying some aspects of the mosquito biology that are important for malaria transmission and we focus on reproduction, on how mosquitoes uh, reproduce, what makes them fertile. Because at the end of the day, our goal is to develop novel methods to control mosquito populations. And we think that we could control them by introducing sterility into natural populations. As an alternative to um, what's already been done now, which is mainly based on the use of insecticides to kill them. And they have to be quite targeted ways to use the insecticides by putting these insecticides on mosquito nets so that mosquitoes that try to bite at night while people are asleep under the nets get killed or through sprays of insecticides inside house walls to kill mosquitoes that are resting indoors but these methods are not sufficient to stop malaria transmission and also mosquitoes are becoming resistant to the action of the insecticides which means they are not killed anymore and they change their behavior rather than biting at night inside houses they start biting outdoor and during the day so that uh, the insecticides cannot get to them anymore. So our studies are instead based on the idea that uh, rather than killing mosquitoes we can sterilize them so that then there'll be fewer mosquitoes out there that can transmit malaria and then eventually malaria transmission will stop. And so we study how mosquitoes reproduce, what's important for their reproductive biology and we have three major avenues of research. The first one is we try to understand what's important for reproduction because one striking aspect of reproduction in the malaria mosquitoes is that the females have sex only once in their lives and after that they completely switch off. They're not interested anymore. And so this is quite a vulnerable step in the life cycle of a mosquito because it happens only once. So we are very much interested in understanding what is it that happens to females. What's the switch? that completely abolishes uh, their receptivity to copulation. Because in principle, if we could understand what are the refractoriness, as it's called, to further copulation, then we could induce the same mechanisms in virgin females and trick them into thinking that they've made it. And so they wouldn't make anymore, they wouldn't contribute to the next generations. Mm-hmm. So that's a big area of our research, where we try to understand what happens to females after copulation, after sex, so that we can identify what are those factors that change their behaviour, so that we can induce them. The second area, a research in studies, is a more translational side. We are interested in developing tools to induce sterility in male mosquitoes. One idea of control is based on the release of males that are sterile. These males will, of course, try to find females to have sex with them, And eventually they'll find them, but there'll be no progeny coming out of these populations. And so if we keep doing this over and over again, if you keep releasing sterile males, then we can sterilize most of the females that are in natural populations. And so eventually the the population will crash, and so will malaria transmission. And so we are trying to find ways to sterilize males in a genetic way to introduce genetic sterility rather than using irradiations or chemo sterilizations as it's done for other insects because it's important that whatever we do to fertility doesn't affect biology the general biology of these mosquitoes and their behavior and also their fitness and their competitiveness in terms of mating and normally irradiation or chemo-sterilisation, those can cause severe fitness costs to these mosquitoes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we were a little more subtle and we try to study so the mosquito DNA and understand what are the factors that are important for male fertility so that we can interfere specifically with those factors. And so develop a male mosquito that is sterile and then we can release in the field. So that's our second area of research. And then a newer area of research that we're interested in is in understanding what's the impact of what we do in terms of malaria transmission and particularly in terms of what would be the impact of these measures on the ability of the females to transmit malaria because if we introduce sterility in a population how does that affect the parasite development within those females Uh, we don't want to develop mosquitoes that are sterile but at the same time that are better at transmitting malaria and so one new aspect of our research is trying to understand what's the link between reproduction of mosquitoes and parasite development inside the female. So this is broadly what our lab is doing.
1: Why is it that malaria is so lethal?
2: Well, malaria has been eradicated from large parts of the world. It's been eradicated from the US, from Europe, and we were actually quite close to eradicating malaria in Africa as well in the 50s and 60s with the use of insecticides the use of quinine and so drugs to kill the parasites and insecticides to kill mosquitoes. But unfortunately, those programs were stopped because of a number of reasons. And within a few years, the number of malaria cases really went back to what it was before these programs were even started. So one of the problems with malaria is that it's a very dynamic disease. From one single case, you can have tens and hundreds of secondary cases that can spread very quickly. So it's very difficult to control.
1: So the synergy between the mosquito and the malaria is the enabling factor?
2: Malaria in principle is a preventable and curable disease. It shouldn't be so deadly. However, our ability to control it in the countries where it's present at the moment is limited by uh, logistic reasons, lack of hospitals, lack of resources, And the fact that the mosquitoes are very efficient at transmitting a parasite.
1: You were listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. Our guest today is Flaminia Catruccia, a molecular entomologist at the Harvard School of Public Health, researching mosquito reproduction as a way to combat malaria. How long has your project been going?
2: We've been working on it for uh, six years.
1: So that's kind of new. Yeah. And does it have a length of time, or is it pretty open-ended?
2: It's open-ended until I get funding. Fingers- <laughs> it's the funding. Yes, yes.
1: Always is, isn't it?
2: Yes, and of course until it's relevant, really. So I think the funding will be there until this until is... Until there's a
1: breakthrough. Yeah. A solution. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and you know, it was a completely empty niche. No one was doing that. So we are really the first ones looking at uh, reproductive biology in these mosquitoes from a molecular and genetic point of view. Most of the studies before us were performed at the ecological level. So there is actually quite a lot known about the ecology of reproduction, but not much known about genetic factors and the pathways that are important for fertility, that's something that is completely new. So whatever we find is is novel, so it's exciting for us, but at the same time, we have to do everything, you know, we have to start from scratch. So it's more challenging, maybe.
1: Once the mosquito has ingested the parasite, the malaria parasite from a human, how does it interact with the mosquito?
2: The parasite has a complex life cycle inside the mosquito vector and it takes a few days to complete from when the mosquito ingests the parasite to when the mosquito can inject the parasite into the next person it takes about 12 days and that's the time that the parasite needs to go through different developmental stages and so once a mosquito takes blood that is infected then the parasite will have to leave the blood environment. There'll be a stage that happens inside the mosquito midgut, and then the parasite will have to leave as quickly as possible uh, the midgut before it it gets killed by the mosquito enzymes, digestive enzymes in particular. And then it'll have to find its way to the salivary glands, which are these tissues where saliva is produced by the mosquito. And once it reaches the salivary glands, then it can be injected into the next person, because during blood feeding, the female will inject a little bit of saliva into the skin of uh, the person that is, that is biting. And so during that process, the parasite can be transmitted. Actually, most mosquitoes don't even live long enough for the parasite to develop. So that's a major roadblock for parasite development.
1: Is there any thought to trying to alter the parasite itself?
2: There's a lot of research on modifying the mosquitoes so that rather than allowing parasite development, they'll kill the parasite. And of course, there's a lot of research on finding drugs that can kill the parasites in people that are infected. And there's research on malaria vaccines as well. We don't have a vaccine yet. There is a a vaccine that is now in stage three trials that could be promising in combination with other control measures. So it's, it's quite clear that malaria will not be defeated by using a single measure. So the use of insecticides, possibly the use of sterile males, hopefully combined with the use of drugs to kill parasites in people, and hopefully also with a, with a vaccine that could be effective for a while. We will need all these measures to control the spread of the disease.
1: How large a group is, is the group that's working on your project?
2: My group is composed by about 10 people at the moment.
1: And what are the different scientific disciplines you've brought together with that group?
2: Well, it's a combination of um, molecular biology and genetics and biochemistry, also evolutionary biology, a bit of ecology as well.
1: And within the group... How do you orchestrate the workflow of all that? How do you decide which thing you're going to focus on at what point in time (laughs) to go ahead and go forward with the research?
2: Oh, yeah, those are actually tough decisions sometimes because there is so much that we could be doing. There are so many different ideas that circulate in the lab and sometimes it's difficult to prioritize them. So in general, we do discuss ideas all together. I can come up with some ideas and then we discuss uh, with the group and so we do a bit of brainstorming and then more ideas emerge. And then we focus on what's more important according to our priorities. We always have to make choices. We try to have projects that are more solid in a way that we know will give us results quite quickly and then at the same time also establish longer-term projects for maybe bigger goals. So it's a combination of, of the two.
1: What is the life cycle of this mosquito
2: so the mosquitoes we work on are um, anophilus mosquitoes, that are Anophelines are the only mosquitoes that can transmit uh, malaria to humans. And there are about 30, 40 Anopheline species that transmit malaria. And we study in particular, um, our mosquito is called Anophilus gambiae, and that's the most important vector in Africa, and therefore the most important vector in the world. But we are also studying some other mosquitoes that are important vectors in other parts of the world. So we're now interested in, South American vectors, Asian vectors. So we have four different mosquito species in our lab for comparative studies. And the life cycle is from a female that has been inseminated by a male, then this female will need to feed on blood to develop eggs. And that's the step that is exploited by the plasmodium parasite of malaria to be transmitted. And so the female will feed on blood, preferentially on on men, on humans. She will develop her eggs, and then the eggs will be fertilized by the sperm that is transferred from the male. The eggs will be laid in water, so the eggs will hatch and give larvae. And then a pupa will, will form that doesn't feed. And then after two days, an adult will emerge from the pupa. And so... Uh, as, uh, as adults then males and females will have to find each other for copulation and then the female will have to blood feed again and so that the cycle can start all over again so overall from egg to egg is about a couple of weeks the life cycle
1: This is KALX Berkeley The show is Spectrum Our guest is Flaminia Catruccia. She's working to eradicate malaria. Is there a side effect to affecting the mosquito population so thoroughly?
2: Yeah, that's a very good question. What are the possible effects on the ecosystem Are mosquitoes? useful for anything. Do we need mosquitoes in this world? And these are very good concerns, very reasonable concerns. However, the fact is that targeting fertility is a very species-specific control measure. Unlike the use of insecticides where you kill everything that comes in contact with insecticide, if you use mosquitoes to eradicate mosquitoes that's a very selective way to do that. It's a very specific way to do that. So I think that the effects on the ecosystem will be very marginal. But of course that's something that would have to be followed and would have to be monitored would be a very say, eco-friendly way to reduce malaria transmission because we would only target those species that transmit malaria and there are thousands of mosquitoes species on the planet and only 20 or 30 are good at transmitting malaria so we wouldn't kill all mosquitoes and we would only have to target those that are good at transmitting the disease.
1: With the mosquitoes that you're growing in the lab how are you feeding them?
2: We feed them differently depending on their developmental stage. So we, the larval stages, the aquatic stages, we feed them with fish food <laughs> or cat food. And for the adults, we feed them with sugar solutions that both the male and the female will feed on. So it's water mixed with sugar. And then the females, we have to feed them on blood for egg development. We feed them with blood that we buy from blood banks. So we've completely eliminated the use of animals uh, for that, which is uh, we are very pleased with. Do
1: you feel you're close with the sterilized male part of the project, and do you have plans to try to take it to the next level?
2: Yeah, we we are thinking a lot now about how we can make our system more effective because the way we induce sterility in these males is very inefficient in mm. the lab. We need more than a day's work to get 20 or 30 males that are sterile, So how do we scale this up? We really need to push, and hopefully we can work with engineers and find the best way to scale this up and do it in an automated way that can be much more effective.
1: You're continuing to pursue the female side of it.
2: The female side of it is what's more exciting for us, in a way, because there's more biology behind it. But we're also very much interested in understanding what are the determinants of fitness in the males, because when we make them sterile, we'll still need to make sure that they will be competitive for matings with field females. And so apart from studying the biology of uh, reproduction in females, we're also very much interested in studying what makes a male, a good male, a fit male that will have good chance of uh, success once it's released. So, mm. yeah, that's why we're we studying both male and female reproductive biology. We are not just studying ways to induce sterility, but also what are the determinants of fertility.
1: If you succeed in creating a sterilized male or a female that doesn't lay eggs, do you have a plan or is there a plan for how to introduce them into the wild? (laughs) Or is that something that would need to be developed when the time comes?
2: We don't have a plan as such, but we are starting to think about a plan. In terms of the logistics of it, there is a lot of know-how that comes from the release of sterile males for targeting other insect uh, species, insect species that are mainly agricultural pests, like fruit flies, melon flies, schoolworms, potato weevils. Those are all insects that cause severe damage to the agriculture So there are programs that are based on the release of millions of sterile flies all over the world, really. And so all the issues concerning the mass production of these insects, the packaging and the distribution of these sterile insects to the places where they're needed, and then the release, all those issues have already been sorted out for other insects. And so in principle, it shouldn't be too difficult to transfer that expertise onto mosquito work. It should be feasible. We don't have the expertise ourselves, but working in collaboration with the people that have it, that should be possible. I'm optimistic that 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 could be done with a huge effort.
1: Are you teaching uh, as well Mm -hmm. as doing your research?
2: Yeah, I have uh, some teaching to do. Uh, It's not massive. I mainly teach postgraduate students and I teach what I work on, so I teach infectious diseases. My teaching load is not very big. Maybe it'll get bigger in the next few years because I've just started a year ago. And, and you're enjoying it? I enjoy teaching postgraduate students very much because they're small groups and normally they're very interested, very dedicated, and also they ask amazing questions. So it's actually quite fulfilling. I know that some of the Harvard students are just brilliant, so it's a different experience from what i was used before. I like it very much, yeah. But... I really prefer doing research, you know, it's, it's, uh, that's my first, uh, my top priority is to do good research. Uh, but of course, uh, we have a, a mission to encourage the next generations to get into science and get into research. I like the idea of contributing to that.
1: Flaminia Catruccia, thank you very much for coming on Spectrum. Welcome. Good luck.
2: <laughs> thank you.
1: like to hear a previous spectrum show they are archived on itunes university go to the calyx website calyx.berkeley.edu click on programming select news scroll down to spectrum in that section there's a link to podcasts or send us an email at spectrum.calyx at yahoo.com and i'll send you the link. feature of Spectrum is to present news stories we find interesting. With the news are Renee Rao and Rick Karneski.
0: The UC Berkeley campus will play host to the first ever DreamBox, a 3D printing vending machine, by the end of this month. The machine will allow users to take advantage of 3D printing technology without paying steep upfront costs for the machinery. To use the machine, users will first choose an item model within DreamBox's catalog or upload one of their own via the web. Next, the print command is given, and the order is sent to a cloud-based print queue before being directed to the vending machine. Once the item has been created, it is put into a locker with a unique unlock code that is texted to the users. The creators estimate that each use of the printer will range from $2 to $15 on average, depending on the complexity of the object and the materials used.
3: A team from Newcastle University reported in Science that honeybees are three times more likely to remember a learned floral scent when they are rewarded with caffeine. Caffeine occurs in kaffia and citrus species, and appears to be pharmacologically active, but not repellent to the bees. In higher concentrations, it is known to be toxic and repellent, due in part to the bitter taste. But in lower concentrations that occur in nature, it offers a reward. The team also applied caffeine to the brains of the insects and observed that it increased activity, aiding the formation of long-term memories.
1: A regular feature of Spectrum is to mention a few of the science and technology events happening locally over the next few weeks. Rick and Renee present the calendar.
0: This March, Nerd Night East Bay will feature UCB Associate Professor Matt Walker on Sleep and Memory, Guy Branham on the Invasion of Canada, and the Chabot Space and Science Center's Jonathan Braidman on the Night Sky. This will happen Monday, March 25th at the New Parkway Theater in Oakland. Doors will open at 7, show begins at 8. Tickets are available online for $8, and all ages are welcome.
3: Past Spectrum guest Michael Eisen will be speaking to the Commonwealth Club on the subject of reinventing scientific communication. While most scientific literature is now online, it remains as inaccessible to the public as it was centuries ago, with the physical limitations of print journals replaced by expensive publisher paywalls. Eisen, who co-founded the Public Library of Science, We'll discuss the scientific journals and new open access models. Tickets are $20 or $7 for students with valid ID. The talk is on Wednesday, March 27th in San Francisco. There is a reception at 5.30 and the talk starts at 6 p.m. Visit CommonwealthClub.org for tickets and more info.
0: This April 2nd, the Ask a Scientist lecture series will discuss tiny creatures with the ability to invade your body, hijack your cells, change your DNA, and modify you physically and behaviorally to suit their own devious goals. Jack McCarroll, director of the Center for Discovery and Innovation in Parasitic Diseases, will lead the talk on the parasitic organisms that live among and inside us. Some of the world's most pernicious diseases are caused by these supremely sophisticated organisms, but according to evolutionary biologists, parasites have also played a significant role in shaping the human species. The event will be held Tuesday, April 2nd at 7pm in Soma Street Food Park near the corner of 11th and Harrison.
3: The free Leonardo Art Science Evening Rendezvous, or laser, has several talks this month. Jess Holding explains the use of light and other natural phenomenon to explore perception. NASA's Chris McKay will speak about the Curiosity Mars mission. USF's Vijaya Nagarjan presents Embedded Mathematics in Women's Ritual Art Designs in Southern India. She'll talk about the geometry of rice powder paintings. Finally, Nikki Ulela will discuss the mechanics and construction of marionettes. LASER takes place at Stanford University on April 4th from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. More information about the LASER series can be found on the web at leonardo.info.
0: Tuesday, April 16th, in the Tusher African Hall, Mary Roach will lead an unforgettable tour of the human insides. Questions inspired by our insides are taboo in their own ways. Why is crunchy food so appealing? Why doesn't the stomach digest itself? How much can you eat before your stomach bursts? Can constipation kill you? Did it kill Elvis? Roach will introduce her audience to the scientists who tackle these questions. She will then take the audience through her experiences in a pet food taste test lab, a bacterial transplant, and a live stomach. This lecture will take place Tuesday, April 16th at 7pm in San Francisco. For more information and to get tickets in advance, go online to calacademy.org.
1: music heard during the show is by Lostana David from his album Folk and Acoustic made available by a Creative Commons license 3.0 attribution special thanks to David Dropkin for helping set up the interview
2: Thank you for listening to Spectrum. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time.